There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Good evening, everyone. We begin the readout tonight with the criminal charges that may be in store for Steve Bannon. Today was the day that the alt-right Trump whisperer was supposed to be deposed by the select committee investigating January 6th. Instead, he flouted their subpoena, snubbed the committee, and in the process put himself in legal jeopardy. He's now earned himself a criminal citation from that committee, which will be voted on next week. Now, not only was Bannon a key proponent of the big lie that inspired the Capitol siege, he was actively involved behind the scenes. As the committee points out, he was communicating with Trump prior to the insurrection, urging him to focus on January 6th. He attended a meeting with lawmakers at the Willard Hotel about decertifying Joe Biden's election victory. And he famously hinted on the day before the insurrection that January 6th would be more than just a protest. All hell is going to break loose tomorrow. Just understand this. All hell is going to break loose tomorrow. It's going to be moving. It's going to be quick. But for all his chest thumping around January 6th, Bannon is now hiding behind Trump's dubious claims of executive privilege. Why? Because Trump told him to. Bannon's lawyer wrote the committee yesterday saying Trump's counsel stated that they were invoking executive and other privileges and therefore directed us not to produce documents or give testimony. Yeah, but the thing is, Bannon's no-show before the committee today has now opened him up to criminal charges. As Chairman Benny Thompson said today, we reject his position entirely. The select committee will not tolerate defiance of our subpoenas, so we must move forward with proceedings to refer Mr. Bannon for criminal contempt. The committee will vote on that referral Tuesday night. Then, once it passes the full House, it will go to the Department of Justice, which will decide whether or not to charge Bannon criminally. And that's where this becomes a critical test for Attorney General Merrick Garland. Namely, will he have the guts and the common sense to enforce the lawful subpoenas of a congressional committee? Now, the answer should be obvious. But unfortunately, we have seen his department go soft on Trump and his supporters, including members of the MAGA lynch mob who laid siege to the U.S. Capitol. The Wall Street Journal reports that according to people familiar with the matter, Garland has told other Justice Department officials that he is concerned that jailing protesters who weren't hardcore extremists or extensive for extensive periods could further radicalize them. Really? OK, so let me get this straight. Merrick Garland is scared that these people might become more radicalized. I'm sorry. What's more radical than staging an insurrection? I mean, is Merrick Garland familiar with the well-documented disparities in America's criminal justice system? Because if he was, it's hard to imagine him going with that story. I mean, if only the millions of people incarcerated for actual low-level crimes in this country could be so lucky. Garland's lean toward leniency for the MAGA faithful, hopefully not just because they're supporters of the former president, suggests that he might not actually see eye to eye with the select committee when it comes to punishing uncooperative witnesses. So, Mr. Tur Mr. Attorney General, sir, please be my guest and prove me wrong. With me now is Congressman Benny Thompson of Mississippi. He is the chair of the Select Committee to investigate January 6th. And Mr. Chairman, thank you so much for being here. I am 
very interested to get your reaction to the apparent reluctance of the attorney general of the United States to be too hard on the people who broke into our Capitol, threatened the lives of yourself, your staff members, the Speaker of the House, threatened to hang Mike Pence, brought a noose, a lynch mob. Five or multiple people died as a result of what happened. What do you make of the attorney general of the United States saying, oh, if we're too hard on them, they might get more radicalized. So we shouldn't be too hard on them. Well, it's my wishes, Joy, uh, for the attorney general to uh, decide to expedite the processing of the document that we send. Clearly, the law says he has to receive it, present it to a grand jury, indict uh, Mr. Bannon. And so he needs to do his job. Uh, We have kept the firewall between our committee and the Department of Justice. So they can't say that was any unfair um, uh, leverage or influence we were using. But given the time frame that we're dealing with, Joy, uh, we hope uh, that the Attorney General sees the importance of moving ahead uh, with this indictment moving ahead with locking Steve Bannon up, moving ahead with clearing the air that you can't conduct an insurrection on the government of the United States of America and nothing happened. So clearly uh, it will be in the Department of Justice's hand. Our committee on Tuesday evening, uh, we will do our job, uh, but this is just the beginning. Uh, I assure you there are others If they do not cooperate, they'll suffer the same fate. But clearly because uh, Mr. Bannon took former Trump's advice not to cooperate, uh, and it's well documented that he was part and parcel to creating what happened. So um, we look forward uh, to our day on next Tuesday. Uh, The public is invited. It will be a business meeting of the committee. Uh, you'll see uh, all the information we have available. Uh, And the reason we will put this before the United States House of Representatives, ask for a criminal referral. Uh, If we get the votes, the speaker will then transmit that document to Merrick Garland, and he has to do his job. Here's the thing. I'm going to put up just for the audience. This is the people we some of the people who've been subpoenaed so far. So Steve Bannon, we know, has already claimed that he's going with executive privilege, even though let's just be clear, the White House, the current White House is in charge of who gets executive privilege. They've said, no, you don't get it. You've also got Cash Patel, Dan Scavino uh, and Mark Meadows, who is the chief of staff. There's been some postponements because of delays in delivering the the subpoenas to Mr. Scavino. These the uh, they're engaging Um, What what does that mean? Cash Patel and Mark Meadows are engaging with the committee. Can you tell us what that means? Well, that means that they're talking to our lawyers and we're trying to set up times for them to come in and potentially uh, get depositions or information. So So they haven't said no. Right. They have not said no. Uh, Steve Bannon has said no. That's why he's getting a criminal referral. Can you imagine a scenario, um, sir, um, of anybody in Mississippi? Let's make a theoretical case. Black Lives Matter protesters from your home state saying we've been subpoenaed. We ain't coming. Can you imagine any other situation in the criminal justice system where a prosecutor would say in advance, we don't want to be too hard on them 
because of their associations with Black Lives Matter. So we, we, we fear that that might radicalize them. Can you imagine that being said about anyone other than Trump supporters? Well, given the double standard that people of color in my state have had to endure for quite a long time, uh, then that means that most black people uh, who've gone to jail in Mississippi uh, would come out radicalized. But that's not the case. So clearly, uh, I think Merrick Garland needs to rethink his position uh, that he's credited with having. We can't have that. Uh, Look. January 6th, joy was awful. Uh, It was not a movie. People saw it in real time. Uh, They saw it with their own eyes. And so we have been tasked with the responsibility of crafting a solution. Merrick Garland uh, has to do his job in a timely manner in order for us to make sure that this doesn't happen again. Uh, Steve Bannon and, and anyone else can't flout the law and expect nothing to happen. Uh, Our committee is unified on this. Uh, We are bipartisan. Uh, And I guarantee you uh, on Tuesday night, you will see that bipartisanship. Uh, All of us love this country. And what we saw that the insurrectionists did on January 6th should never happen. And I assure you, our job is to make sure that we produce a document Uh, that guarantees, if adopted, it will never, ever happen again. Congressman Benny Thompson, who chairs the January 6th committee, thank you so much. We really appreciate your time tonight, and we will be watching uh, what happens next week. Thank you, sir. Really appreciate you. All right. Joining us now is Daniel Goldman, former U.S., former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, who served as majority counsel in the first Trump impeachment. I, I, I really have the same question for you about the precedent I I frankly was shocked reading what um, Mayor Garland, Attorney General Garland, allegedly said about worrying that prosecuting um, these people for, you know, committing this crime would further radicalize them. I mean, I I know that he was uh, involved during the 1990s um, when we did prosecute domestic terrorists and he didn't worry about that. And, And suddenly it, it, I worry that his that the reason he's saying that is just because they are supporters of a former Republican president. This was what Rob Reiner, actor Rob Reiner, who's also a very strong political activist, tweeted. The only reason a prosecutor would choose not to indict Trump is the fear that if he did, his cult would start a civil war. But if you don't indict a man who tried to overthrow the government, then civil war has already been that civil war has already been lost. And this is what constitutional lawyer Lawrence Tribe responded, how he responded. He said a sobering thought. So let's hope A.G. Garland hadn't already decided not to bring criminal charges against the probably guilty former president. Do you worry, as I do, that he already has made that decision? And it's a political decision that he does not want to strongly go after supporters of the former president. I don't think that he's making that decision based on politics. I actually think that what he's saying has some merit. The problem with what he's saying is that it is very selectively targeted at the Trump supporters for January 6th. I think it's generally true that black and brown people across the country who are put in jail for extensive narcotics, nonviolent offenses and other minor offenses, as you point out, uh, go to jail and they are radicalized. I think we need a lot of reform as it comes to our system. The bigger issue, I think, for Merrick Garland right now is what he's going to do with Donald Trump 
and what he's going to do with Steve Bannon. And the reason why it is so important is that if he does not open an investigation, and we have no reason to believe that he has, into Donald Trump and his activity in the lead up to January 6th, then including January 6th, but all of his efforts to overturn the election. And then if he also does not enforce the Steve Bannon subpoena by criminally charging Steve Bannon with Bannon with contempt of Congress, then I fear that his actions will ultimately lead us to uh, to fail to understand what exactly happened on January 6th, because if he doesn't enforce the subpoena for Steve Bannon and everyone who comes after him, then the January 6th committee is not going to have time to get to the bottom of what happened. And then on the other hand, he could do it himself if he looked into Donald Trump's actions and those around him in the lead up to January 6th. But by all accounts, his investigation is focusing just on the rioters and not on the senior White House officials, including the former president. And, and can I, and despite it include, you know, yes, the disparities are obvious. If these had been, and by the way, like 95, 96, 97 percent of Black Lives Matter protests were entirely peaceful. We've seen instances where you had infiltration by white nationalists, and I'm not sure any of those have been arrested and prosecuted for coming in. We saw the guy who, you know, broke the glass in Minneapolis, uh, who had the all black on. I don't even know if that guy's been arrested and prosecuted, even though he's been identified as a, a white nationalist. There's a pattern here where if you support Donald Trump or if Donald Trump is involved, this attorney general doesn't take a whole lot of action. Sarah Kenzior, um, she tweeted a pretty brutal thread about Merrick Garland um, late last night, and she listed some of the things that he has done or failed to do. He defended Donald Trump in a personal lawsuit uh, against E. Jean Carroll, who has accused him of rape. He asked a federal judge to dismiss a lawsuit against William Barr relating to the beating and gassing of protesters in Lafayette Square, a terrible precedent. He refused to release the OLC memo that William Barr used to clear Trump of obstructing justice. He appealed the ruling that Dems had won, seeking to expose corruption at the Trump Hotel. He wants to implement a 50-year delay, 50 years, on when courts can consider releasing materials from federal grand juries. At what point does Merrick Garland go from protecting the presidency to looking like he is just simply defending Donald Trump because he thinks that going after Donald Trump in any way will make his supporters sad and will make them mad and might make them violent when they're already violent. <laughs> well, I think he's been very clear that domestic violent extremism is the number one problem. He created a task force to address it. He has doubled the number of prosecutors who are investigating domestic violent extremism. There are over 600 people who have been charged for January 6th, um, the, the insurrection. So yes, there, he has a lot of institutional concerns that he has to be aware of, and I can't go line by line and address each of them. But there's no question that the Department of Justice recognizes the seriousness of domestic violent extremism and has been quite active and aggressive in charging everyone for January 6th. I think the biggest problem that you're pointing out is less about prosecuting Donald Trump supporters and more about actually seeing the facts, seeing the uh, evidence and investigating the former president and those around him for trying to subvert the election and overturn the will of the people. And that is a really dangerous precedent. There's obviously a lot of partisanship and political concerns involved with doing that. 
But at some point, we need to take a stand against this anti-democratic behavior. And from what I see in the public sphere, there's a lot of evidence to investigate. Yeah, there's saving our democracy is a big job. We're going to see if he is up to it. Because, you know, you can't save our democracy and also worry about the feelings, the delicate little feelings of MAGA supporters and try to give them um, exculpation from justice, shield them from justice just because you think they might be become even more dangerous. That's why they're dangerous, because they've been getting away with this stuff for far too long. Do something, Merrick Garland. I would like to be wrong. I would like to be wrong this time. But I'm, I'm worried. Daniel Goldman. Thank you very much. Up next on The Readout. The gospel of Donald Trump is built around one grievance that he just cannot accept that he lost and his feelings are hurt. Plus, a readout exclusive. Pennsylvania Attorney General Josh Shapiro, who has been at the forefront of the battle against the big lie, joins me in his first national television interview since launching his campaign for governor. Plus, the high price that a black Maryland school superintendent paid for simply stating that racism exists and Black Lives Matter. That superintendent, Dr. Andrea Kane, joins me. And tonight's absolute worst, taking a stand for something destructive isn't courageous, it's indulgent and probably deadly for some of the people who look up to you. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. It is now the dogma of the Republican Party that the insurrection was good. It was great. That was the messaging last night at a festival of Trumpism in Virginia under the guise of a rally for Republican candidate for Governor Glenn Youngkin, where this actually happened. I also want to invite Kim from Chesapeake. She's carrying an American flag that was carried at the peaceful rally with Donald J. Trump on January 6th. you all, I ask you all to rise and join us as Mark Lloyd leads us in the pledge. Face the flag. I pledge allegiance to the flag. It is idolatrous and deranged. They are now worshiping this totem to the insurrection. But in the end, The religion of Trump really just boils down to the fact that decrepit old orange Julius Caesar simply cannot accept that he lost the election and his followers have built an entire religion around that pathetic fact. Youngkin himself was not there for the call to worship. And today he distanced himself from the pledge that he called weird and wrong. 
But at the event led by man of many shirts and unanswered subpoenas, Steve Bannon, his twice impeached former boss phoned in to support Youngkin and lie about the election, as did an Arizona state representative who was a leading proponent of that state's fraud. If Mango Mussolini would just wake up and say, I lost, it could just be over. But no, 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 no. So they're prepared to take down the entire Republican Party in his honor. A Michigan right wing radio host told followers to give power to the Democrats if Republican lawmakers don't review Trump's election, the one he clearly lost. And Trump says Republicans won't vote in 2022 or 2024 if they don't make solving his big lie their top priority. You know what? Yeah, do that. Do that in fealty to your false idol. That one guy who lost an election, a true believer. They wouldn't say no, would they? Right. I'm joined now by Democratic strategist Juanita Tolliver. And Kurt Bardella, advisor to the DCCC, who's also consulting with the DNC in the Virginia governor's race. Juanita, I grew up in church. And the way I understood the gospel is that there is one God. But apparently, in the Republican Party, there's a new one. He's been replaced by Donald Trump. And his symbols include golden Donald Trumps that they bow down to at CPAC and a flag flown at his insurrection that they now pledge allegiance to. Your thoughts? This undying faith is what is going to continue to consume the GOP because they're so thirsty to tap into the energy of his base. They're so thirsty for it. And that threat that you mentioned, Trump making as far as, hey, my voters won't turn out for you in 2022, or the radio host saying vote for Democrats. I'm sure Democrats are hearing that like, I guess we'll take it, right? Like, give us the power, please. You know, I I think, but it comes down to Trump yet again flexing on the GOP members who tethered their party to him all for the sake of self-preservation, all for the sake of potential control of Congress. And what they're going to get back is this consistent blowback. And I'm sure they're pissed to think about the fact that they're going to go into the 2022 midterms talking about the 2020 election. This is still a look backwards, and they're going to do it because they always fall in line. They all have that fear, as you said, as though Trump is some form of type of deity to them. They're scared of him. They're too afraid to cross him. And this is only going to continue for the foreseeable future because no member of the GOP has a backbone to stand up to this man. They've shown this time and time again. This is who they are. This is who they align with. And it looks like Youngkin is no different, frankly, right? He might not have been in the room But these are words that he believes. This is stuff he said in the GOP primary in Virginia. And he's just tapping back into that because even though he wasn't in the room yesterday night, he's still been doing radio with Seb Gorka. He's been out on the stump with uh, Virginia Senator Chase, who we know repeats these same lies. So expect Democrats to hit that drum, roll that same playback you just showed, Joy, because they know that's going to help Democrats turn out. And they know it's going to turn off independents and swing voters across the Commonwealth. Yeah, I mean, you know, Kurt, you know, the the thing about a god is that they are invisible when they're not in their golden idol form. So when Trump is not in his gold form at CPAC where where he can see them, he's invisible. And so Mr. Youngkin may want to put out a little statement saying, well, that was weird and wrong. But he's now probably got to, like, coil himself in a ball and wait for their invisible god to to hit him because he can even without Twitter. If Trump were to come out and be like, F Youngkin, he would panic because he needs those voters, right? He needs the freak vote. He needs the religion vote. 
And he thinks he can also somehow get the regular moderate normal people vote. So where does he where does he go from here? Can he can he withstand that that was weird and wrong? Or is he eventually going to have to take the knee? Oh, come on, Joy. We've seen this play over and over again. He's going to take the knee just like Lindsey Graham did, just like Marco Rubio did, just like Ted Cruz has done, just like every single person who is a part of the Republican Party establishment now. And let's be clear, this is the Republican Party establishment now. The Steve Bannons, the Donald Trumps, the Josh Hawleys, all of these right-wing, racist, authoritarian wannabes is the establishment of the Republican Party. And Glenn Youngkin is first in line wanting to be a part of them. I don't care what he said in that statement. If you want to put out a real statement that addresses this, then go out there, Glenn, and say, I don't want a single person who applauded when that flag came out to vote for me. I don't want a single person who participated in Charlottesville to vote for me. I don't want a single person who believes in the great lie to vote for me. I don't want a single person who thinks that the domestic terrorists who participated in January 6th, I don't want them to vote for me. Do that, Glenn. Go out there and make that statement, and then you can say that you're different from Donald Trump and Steve Bannon. But until you do that, you are just one of their acolytes. You are just one of their enablers. You are just one of those people marching in the army that is determined to undermine democracy. And let's make no mistake about it. If we do not elect Terry McAuliffe and the rest of the Democratic Party slate, they will use states and positions like the Secretary of State, Attorney General, Lieutenant Governor, Governor's Office to hijack democracy in 2024. It's not just about what happened with the big lie in 2020. They are telegraphing that it is their intention, it is their purpose, it is their mission to use the instruments of government and elections like this to impact and steal the election in 2024. And if y'all are in Virginia and you don't believe that, I have a big bridge to sell you. If Youngkin gets in, the pressure on him to steal the election and do whatever he can to steal in 2024 will be enormous, and he will fold like a Romney. Let's move on to Kirsten Cinema. Why is she in Europe, Juanita? Why is she in Europe when she <laughs> should be here trying to help the people of Arizona? Can you explain it to me? What's she doing in Europe oh. fundraising? Joy, now you know I have no clue what she thinks she's doing, especially when the whole state of Arizona is watching her, right? They are coming for her, Joy. So while she's out here traipsing around Europe, fundraising and ignoring true opportunities to invest, not only in Arizona, but across the country, a true opportunity to realize Biden's agenda, people are seeing her and people are frustrated. I saw the data for progress poll today that said of, among Democrats who vote in the primary in Arizona, 70 percent disapprove of what she's doing. And honestly, as a strategist, I'm looking forward. OK, what could she possibly do to dig herself out of a hole of 70 percent disapproval over the next few years if she is part to blame for tanking Biden's agenda, if she's part to blame for taking Democrats agenda, if she contributes to this failed leadership um, that we're seeing where Democrats have the full reins of not only Congress, but the White House. I don't see her doing anything to potentially recover from that, even though her reelection is three years off. Oh, at this point, a stale slice of bread with a pink wig and funny glasses can beat her in a primary. That's what she needs to understand. She probably got <laughs> another job lined up because I don't think this is going to be her job for very long. Juanita Tolliver, Kurt Bardella. Pink wig, funny glasses, stale plot slice of bread. That's your candidate in 2024, <laughs> Democrats. Up next. In a readout exclusive, Pennsylvania Attorney General Josh Shapiro joins me for his first national television interview since announcing his campaign for governor in that critical battleground state. You do not want to miss it. 
everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. As the January 6th committee continues its fight against the assault on our democracy, the same fight is happening in states across this country, where Republicans are falling all over themselves to bow down to their dear leader and spread the gospel of the big lie. In Pennsylvania, where Republicans are trying to obtain private personal information on all seven million state voters for their investigation, quote unquote, Democratic Attorney General Josh Shapiro filed a motion today to have the courts block that move, saying, quote, Pennsylvanians' fundamental rights are under attack. These senators are using their position of power to demand voters' personal information, all so that they may continue to lie about our elections. It is time for public officials to move past the big lie and to start reminding the public that our elections are accurate, fair, and secure. And joining me now is Pennsylvania's Attorney General Josh Shapiro in his first national interview since announcing his run for Pennsylvania governor yesterday. Um, Thank you so much for being here, uh, Attorney General Shapiro. I, at this point, am am a one-issue voter. I'm not in the state of Pennsylvania, but I am a one-issue voter, democracy, because I am very worried about it. And and I wonder if, as you are campaigning, how high does saving democracy rank on your list of priorities? Well, Joy, democracy is on the ballot, and it is the central issue in my campaign. Everything else is built on the foundation— of people counting in our system and having their voice heard in our system. That's why it's so critical. Joe, I want you to know, I announced my candidacy yesterday, as you said, this is my first national interview. But the first thing I did today was take our campaign bus down to Mother Bethel in the city of Philadelphia, the oldest AME church in the nation, a church where voting rights and efforts to expand civil rights happened in the walls of that church and inside with the leaders there. Great leaders came and preached and made a change. And I thought it was critically important that we go and remind ourselves of the history, of the progress we made and make darn clear here in Pennsylvania, the birthplace of our democracy, that we will not go back. And so I've made democracy and voting rights the central issue in my campaign for Pennsylvania governor. Right now, your state Senate is trying to obtain the personal information of every voter in the state. I'm assuming that they have much more interest in the voters in Philadelphia, let's say, uh, in places where there are lots of black voters, and that they want to, quote unquote, attempt these audits that are happening in places like Arizona. What, what I worry about in these governor's races is that if Republicans win in these races, you're going to see every place Republicans have control of the governor's office or of the state Senate or the state House attempt to use those offices to force Donald Trump or whatever, whoever he anoints 
to be the president regardless of the outcome of the election. Do you see in what Republicans are doing a real threat of that in the state of Pennsylvania? Oh, without a doubt. You know, Joy, there's about a dozen Republicans seeking to run against me, and they are all singing from the same hymnal. They're all trying to pass these far-right litmus tests. They're all pandering. And by the way, pandering out of weakness and promoting the big lie. They would all appoint secretaries of state that would undermine voting rights and no doubt do the bidding of the former president. What is at stake in this election is the very foundation of our democracy, our voting rights. And there is a clear contrast between me and whoever the Republicans nominate for governor. And we cannot afford to go backwards. We're also battling not just who I'm running against, but a Republican legislature who, by the way, in Pennsylvania, have put forth the same bills that have passed into law in Georgia and Texas to restrict voting rights. And but for the veto pen of our current governor, those things haven't passed here in Pennsylvania. But make no mistake, as governor, if they come for your voting rights here, they come for your reproductive rights, if they come for your right to organize, I will not hesitate to use my veto pen to protect the good people of Pennsylvania and protect the progress that we've made over the years. We cannot go back. And there is a stark choice in this election. And, you know, I I think about the, you know, what they call the Brexit states, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, that flipped to Biden by narrow margins in 2020. Many of these states have mixed power, right? The the legislatures or parts of the legislatures are in different hands from the governor. But it is having Democratic governors um, that is a fail safe against that. I wonder, as you go out and talk to voters, are are voters seeing that? Do they understand that, that this is the year when if you care about democracy, there really isn't another party left? They all have fallen to Trump. All the Republicans have gone into his into his his camp, into his religion. Do do voters know that? Do they they say that to you? It's the first issue people raise with me. They raise it with me as their attorney general, and they raise it with me now as a candidate for governor. And I've spoken loud and clear on this. When I visited with the pastors today at Mother Bethel, it was a serious topic of our conversation. When I was in a hair salon in southwest Philadelphia today, people came and talked to me about voting rights. All across this Commonwealth, people are focused on protecting their rights, protecting the gains they've made, making sure their voices can be heard. Because here's the thing, Joy, we don't fix health care, invest in our schools, deal with the infrastructure we need, connect people via broadband from Waynesburg, Pennsylvania to West Philly, unless we have a dialogue and representation that includes everyone. And when you start to take away people's right to vote, and take people away from the table, then we can't come up with solutions to these pressing problems, just solutions to these pressing problems. What they're trying to do, Joy, here in Pennsylvania and across the country, the Republicans, the people running against me, the people pushing the big lie, they're trying to say that certain people don't count. They're trying to write certain people out of our democracy. And I refuse to let that happen here in the birthplace of our democracy. Uh, I wish you luck. Uh, Attorney General Josh Shapiro, you've always been very good about coming on. We really appreciate you sharing the information you did today. Best of luck in your campaign. There's a lot at stake. Thank you so much, Joy. Thank you so much. All right. Our absolute worst is still ahead. Yes, there's more. But up next, yet another educator was chased out of her job as a casualty of this phony right-wing panic over critical race theory. We will talk to former Maryland Superintendent Andrea Kaye, Dr. Andrea Kaye, 
about what happened after she wrote an email mentioning racism in the wake of George Floyd's death. Today would have been George Floyd's 48th birthday. In the wake of his murder, Dr. Andrea Kane, the school superintendent in Queen Anne's County, Maryland, used his tragic death and the subsequent calls for reform as an opportunity to start a conversation on racism within her community. Her decision to invite a complicated dialogue prompted a ferocious and hate-filled backlash that was so overwhelming it led to her departure. That campaign was spearheaded by a parent, Gordana Schifanelli, who launched a Facebook-driven campaign to get Dr. Kane fired. According to the New York Times, which viewed a post in a group chat belonging to her group, the Kent Island Patriots, Schifanelli wrote, Dr. Kane needs to end her contract and go. The children must know that those individuals who died in police custody were criminals, not heroes. Our children must never feel that their white skin color makes them guilty of slavery or racism. That same group became a forum for racist attacks. Schifanelli's lawyer and husband, who is now a member of the school board, told The New York Times that Schifanelli was horrified by those racist comments and threatened to remove the members responsible. That said, the group itself has since been banned by Facebook earlier this year, after the Kent Island Patriots had installed their preferred candidates on the school board, Dr. Kane left the district. Joining me now is Dr. Andrea Kane, former superintendent of schools for Queen Anne's County, Maryland, and a professor of practice in educational leadership at the University of Pennsylvania's Graduate School of Education. Um, thank you so much for being here, uh, Dr. Kane. I read your story in just absolute horror at what you went through, all of the things that you went through as superintendent, trying to bring, uh, you know, bring to light racism, which is endemic to our country. I mean, this is where Maryland is where Harriet Tubman was enslaved. Let's just keep it real. Right. This was a, a slave right. state with a long history of discrimination. Um, talk a little bit about how it was received when you sent that email, for those who have not read the story in the New York Times, what happened? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, it was a typical letter. So superintendents send letters to the community to keep them updated all the time. And, and I was the same way. I sent a letter and I included a lot of information about things that were happening in the district. But then I also felt compelled to talk about what was happening in terms of the racism that our country was ex experiencing and how we ought to talk with our children about the images that they see on television. In the same letter, I asked the community to extend grace to one another, to listen to each other. Um, and I gave them some tips that I had uh, uh, collected from um, a scholar Tyrone Howard, about how we ought to deal with this and how we ought to help our children make meaning from this. And it, it was not well received at first by a handful. Um, initially, I did get a lot of uh, thank yous from teachers and, and from parents to say, you know, you're shining a light on this. This is important. We need to talk about this. And then the hate started. And, and it was vile. It was absolutely vile. We were called, as Black people called everything, um, animals, and, and they talked about how we needed to be all killed, and, and it was just ridiculous. So I, uh, at that point, a community group, the um, Sunday Supper Committee, they launched a campaign in response to 
uh, the, the uh, Miss Giffinelli's campaign to say, hey, let our children talk about race. This is happening across the country and, and you know, burying in our heads in the sand isn't going to make it go yep. away. And, and once, this, you know, and go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that it, there is this, the irony, first of all, of using racism and, and, and racist attacks to demand that people stop talking about racism and insisting there is no racism. That's kind of ironic. But I want to let people listen to, to hear how Ms. Schifanelli sounds. This is her on Fox News. She actually got a little famous uh, and is now actually a candidate for lieutenant governor with a Trump supporter who showed up at the insurrection. Uh, here she is. This is Gordana Schifanelli. I think it's a victory for Queen Anne's County children because at the end of the day, it is all about the children. And the entire platform was no politics in school, no political indoctrination on children in elementary schools. Uh, There is no systemic racism against anyone in our public schools, and we cannot make one up just because it is politically uh, fashionable at the moment. Uh, We cannot use children as, as social justice warriors. There is no systemic racism. The people who want to believe that just have, have really taken over all over the country and are going after people like you because they, they demand that we rewrite the history of this country to say there is no racism past or present. In your view, in Lee, as you left Queen Anne's County, did you feel like you were able to make a difference to get people to realize that that's not true? Do you think the reaction to you proves that you were right? I I think that it did make a difference. Uh, And I say that because I have gotten emails and text messages to say, thank you. Uh, What you did made a difference. Now, the question becomes, is it going to continue? Um, And and probably not. But I know that I made a difference. We've done uh, professional development on culturally responsive teaching, cultural relevance, equity, on a regular basis since I arrived in Queen Anne's County. And that was absolutely critical. I put different uh, initiatives in place to ensure that equity was a part of what was happening in schools, equitable practices, with ensuring that Black, Brown, and poor children were in advanced placement classes, in addition to the way we looked at our data, the way we analyzed Mm -hmm. our data. All of our administrators had a uh, equity goal, as did I. Uh, so we were we were well on our way to doing what needed to be done for students in, in the district. And, and I receive a lot of thank yous even now from yeah. teachers um, about that. Well, I can tell you that just reading about some of the young people that were, you know, they had not seen a black woman with the kind of power that you had before you. And that it just in and of itself inspired them. And you inspired so many people. And uh, I just want to thank you for standing up for the truth and for real history. Um, and you took a lot of a lot of hell for it. But uh, I just want to thank you for doing what you what you what you did in, in Queen Anne's County. Thank you. Thank you so much. And, and my story, while h- horrific, this is happening across the country. All this country. It's happening Amen. to black superintendents, black women, black men across Amen. the country. It truly and we is. have to rally around that. Amen. 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 Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you, Dr. Kane. Thank you. Okay, before we go to break, we wanted to give you an update on the residents of Benton Harbor, Michigan, the majority black community where water had had abnormally high levels of lead in it for at least three years. Some residents didn't know that there was a problem until the state issued an advisory last week. 
Today, Michigan's lieutenant governor announced that the state would replace all the city's lead pipes within the next uh, 18 months. That's a long time to be without clean water. But I guess it's faster than their previous five-year plan. Up next on The Readout, tonight's absolute worst. A group so dedicated to their anti-vax and pseudo-oppressed agenda, they're co-opting the legacy of one of the greatest athletes and activists of all time. Stay with us. The new anti-vax poster child, Brooklyn Nets guard Kyrie Irving, went on Instagram Live on Wednesday to ramble, I mean speak, for the first time since his team told him he was barred from playing until he got the shot. You think I really want to lose money? You think I really want to give up on my dream to go after a championship in order to be on the team? I have to be vaccinated. I chose to be unvaccinated, and that was my choice. This is not a political thing here. This is not about the NBA. This is not about any organization. It's really about my life and what I'm choosing to do. Irving went on to say more, a lot more, telling fans that he is taking a stance against those who have lost their jobs over vaccine mandates. But then a new development emerged. Irving's anti-vax tirade was somehow compared to, wait for it, oh, just you wait, to the activism of the greatest of all time, Muhammad Ali, with Knicks alum Stefan Marbury saying Ali would be proud. Okay, okay, who's triggered right now? Because I am for sure, all the way triggered. Triggered Knicks fan right here. Now, I've probably mentioned this before on this show, but Muhammad Ali is like literally my personal hero, my favorite athlete of all time. I was obsessed with him in boxing growing up, only to become further captivated by who he was outside the ring, an international icon and lifelong fighter for human rights and equality. Which is why I am gonna do my very best to purge this comparison from the internets for good. Kyrie Irving is not the modern-day Muhammad Ali. He is a famous person using his famous person platform to put others at risk of a deadly airborne disease that has wreaked havoc on the human race and disproportionately on people who look like Kyrie Irving. Muhammad Ali, on the other hand, took a political stance as a conscientious objector to the Vietnam War, saying that he refused to go to war and shoot my brother or some darker people or some poor, hungry people in the mud for big, powerful America. Ali risked going to prison because of his stance. Prison. Now, here's the other thing. Muhammad Ali supported vaccines, even doing a PSA encouraging them for New Yorkers in 1978. The law says if your kids don't have their shots for dangerous diseases like mumps, measles, and polio, they aren't getting into school. The law also says they must go to school. So you have no choice. Get your kids their shots. So no, no, Kyrie Irving is the literal opposite of Muhammad Ali. He is a person who once said the world is flat and who is now being used as a pawn for the alt-right and MAGA army, like Ted Cruz, who's praising him for his incredible courage, but who called Colin Kaepernick a rich, spoiled athlete for taking a knee against police killing people who look like Kyrie Irving. Hey, professional Karen, Laura Ingraham, should Kyrie Irving shut up and dribble or not? Being a contrarian does not make you an intellectual. It does not make you a hero. It most certainly does not make you anything near the greatest. In fact, it makes you and those using you as an anti-vax celebrity pawn the absolute worst. That's tonight's readout. Go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Visit msnbc.com app to download.